Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. I love listening to podcasts and there are a few podcasts that I would like you to know about. So every now and then I'm going to put an ad in before the show starts. These are not sponsored ads. These guys don't pay me to do this. I just really like the podcasts. So I hope you can take a chance with them as well. They're just a minute or two long, so they won't take up too much of your time. So have a listen and see what you think. Hi, I'm Sandy Kay. I hope you'll join me each week for a breath of fresh air. It's a light, bright and breezy music show that features candid, warm and often humorous conversations with your favourite musical stars from the 60s, 70s and 80s. I love tracking down and chatting to the people who made the music we all grew up with. And I can think of nothing better than putting a smile on your face as together we relive some of the best days of our collective youth. Think Chicago's Lee Lochnane, Alice Cooper, Peter Frampton, Journey's Neil Sean, Dave Mason, Dr Hook and Gordon Lightfoot for starters. Just hit follow and search for your favourite artist. It's all about their lives, their stories and their music. Today my guest is musician and actor Flo McSweeney. Flo first came to prominence as a versatile vocalist on the Irish rock scene with standout performances with acts such as Moving Hearts and Toy with Rhythm, before embarking on a solo career alongside acting roles in theatres across Ireland. In 2018, Flo released her debut solo album, Picture in a Frame, to critical acclaim. A blend of coffee jazz and standards, the album was 30 years in the making, and has allowed Flo to be in charge of her creativity. I was delighted to have Flo as a guest, so I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Hi Flo, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. My pleasure. It's The Comfortable Spot. Mm. That's my chair. <laughs> I've got a cushion. Come here. I used to look at you up on stage and go, oh, one day I'm going to get a chat with her and here I am now, filling <laughs> me dreams. That <laughs> oh, wasn't today or yesterday, probably mm. a long I was time think ago. I, I think I was in the crowd. All right, yeah, there's a couple of things you used to do and we can talk about that in later. But um, yeah, I was only a wee young lad, but um, I looked older so I could get into all these gigs when I was 13 and 14. So uh, they were <laughs> real, <laughs> they were a real lesson learned for me. Good lessons, you know, great lessons. Mm. So um, listen, as I said, um, we've loads to talk about. You've got an album out. Um, you're constantly gigging every time I'm trying to catch it. Say, can you do this this week? Can you do it that week? Which is brilliant because that's what we want to see. Yeah. We want to see live music back, not only here yeah. in Ireland, but everywhere. And it's brilliant to see that coming into play. But I, I was hoping that we could start off with your background and how you started getting into music. And I'm wondering, did it start at home? Was the McSweeney's house a noisy musical house or is this something that you developed on your own? I think I developed it on my own. It was a noisy house. It was a musical house in that my elder sister uh, is a lovely singer. She never pursued it as a career. She ended up being a, an aerostat with their lingus. Um, and then I have another sister who's an actor who worked in the castle in Doki as an actor for 
20 years. She's retired now. And um, and then I have a twin brother. Uh, we're the youngest. And an older brother. My older brother was big into music. And um, when I was about, I don't know, 14, I think 15, and Blondie's Parallel Lines came out. And he was able to more or less erase her voice completely. And I did the whole album from start to finish, recorded it in his bedroom on a cassette tape. And uh, it's there somewhere. Uh, I know it's floating around somewhere. And um, and I was a very good mimic as a young. I, I could I could mimic Blondie. I could mimic uh, Marlene Dietrich. And um, so that's kind of where my. I mean, I think I was about twelve or thirteen when I started really noticing my own voice. I had been bullied uh, by a group of girlfriends and uh, sort of ejected from the friend group over summer. So I spent a lonely summer in my room, but I have them to thank for, I started playing all my sister's albums and Carol King and Simon Garfunkel and all that kind of, and James Taylor. And I started, I spent the whole summer singing in my bedroom at age 13. It was really an eclectic mix that you were being kind of introduced to because if you've got older yeah. people and then you've got like what's in the charts at that time, it would have been quite different. So you were getting a really good education in terms of different styles and different methods, especially when it comes to singing. Completely. And one of the albums, um, it was Asia, uh, Stevie Dan, and uh, that was in my house. And I learned, I, I learned all the songs and then I learned each of the harmonies. And these are not the easiest of harmonies and so I'd be listening to Asia or Carol King and then my brother was a big um, Bowie fan so there was so there was a massive a massive influence and I don't you know at that age you don't realize you're being influenced you're just soaking it all in which is what I was doing and then I think when I was 17 I answered a hot press ad and joined a band called Lined Dancer from Bray and I thought it was the coolest name for a band until a band called Deaf Actor appeared <laughs> and um, uh, but I I have an album up in my attic. I said it's like the picture of Dorian Gray in reverse. All the memorabilia I have up in the attic, and there's photographs from going back. I I, I started photo album so from that band, Blind Dancer, which is nineteen you know nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight, and I used to crimp my hair to make it look like Kate Bush. So so was it was it folk music or was it rock music or no. what? what it was rock music and I used to dress a bit like Kate Bush. I used to wear an all-in-one bodysuit thing and put glitter on my eyelids. So it was a, a mishmash a mishmash of all kinds of looks. And we used to play in, um, oh my God, the place up in Mount Marion. Um, I, the name escapes me, but it was a big venue. And we played there with loads of gigs. There were loads of gigs around in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, and. I, I went, like, when I left school, I promised my mother that I would do a secretarial course. And she said, do a secretarial course, and then you can do what you like. Just that I think m m parents' ambitions, a mother's ambition in those days was either for her daughter to marry well or, you know, become the secretary of a, a doctor and then marry him. And um, so I did a secretarial course, but I ended up working in an ad agency. And while I was there, I was very keen dancer when I was a, a child and, and did a lot of ballet classes. My old dance teacher was putting a dance group together to go to Germany for a year, two years. So I rang her and I just went to do a class and then she actually offered me the job. So my parents were away in Cork for a week and when they came back, I'd hand my notice in and told them I was, I might as well have told them I was running away with the circus. So I joined a dance troupe and went to Germany and Italy for a year and a half at 19. That must have been a huge learning experience. I mean, you were exposed to what 
you know, the politics of Italy because it wasn't, you know, we, were, we it was bouncing from right to left and then you would have had the kind of um, the, the Catholic side of it, but you would have also had the laissez-faire side of it as well. So it must have been a huge experience for you. It was. I mean, we went to Germany first and we were in a place called Karlsruhe and I was an innocent, you know, you think you know it all, but we were working in a club. It was a su- supper club run by a man called Ziggy Borscht. I often think this is like a movie. It reads like a movie. It would make a great movie. And it was one of those beautiful clubs. We walked in, you sort of, it went down steps and there were all these leather booths and then a semicircular stage. And there was everything from, you know, the, 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 the sort of cabaret acts from the 70s. There was an English couple who used to do a magic act and they would tour around all these clubs. There was um, a singer, Ralph, who had kind of long brown hair and a permatan. And, um, and then uh, um, a Filipino singer called Between who used to sing English phonetically and at one point she got sick she got laryngitis and I stood in for her and used her backing um, tracks but there were strippers as well in amongst all that so we'd all be the, and we were the dance troupe that was like we had a kind of hot gossip type show which was the sort of cool thing of the you know the early 80s and we also had a sort of like a Vegas show with you know big huge feather headdresses and uh, coming down the stairs to New York, New York. So we'd stand behind the bar in our dressing gowns looking at the strippers going, she's a really good stripper. No, she's not so good. No, but she's really good. I mean, you know, I thought if my mother, if my mother only knew, I did get offered a job by an agent who told me I could make a fortune um, if I wanted to become a stripper, but um, I never did. So I never <laughs> No, that's not a very Irish thing to do, is it? <laughs> it's kind of like, no. I used to come home, I used to come home, like, you know, for Christmas or whatever, and I'd be up in my local pub in, I grew up in Cavendish, and I'd be in the local pub and I'd be pulling out these Polaroids. And I, I knew that I was being gossiped about and laughed about by my uh, friends because it was so out of the ordinary, you know, but it had become very much the norm for me. We shared the dance troupe I was in was called Mixture Ballet, and we had a tiny dressing room the size of a toilet. And we shared that at one point with an American stripper called Keita Lita, not with her, but with her uh, four boa constrictors. <laughs> This is like I'm so. Sure oh, there's definitely, definitely, yeah. There's definitely a couple of uh, a couple of books in there, Flo. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I look back in it, I think it was just so mad, but so wonderful. It was so, so wonderful and so exciting and so kind of me. You know, I was, yeah. it, you know, I, I'd say yes to something. I think about it later. And of course, you know, in that time, you you know, everyone would think that there's a kind of a seedy side to it, and that was much more. There was. It was much more yeah. normalized in Germany than it was, say, in the UK or in Ireland. And totally. but having said that, there was a kind of a community of people, wasn't there, who really considered themselves artists rather than just strippers and you know And they were artists. I mean they at some of some of them were. This is the little girl, the young girl behind the bar talking now in her dressing gown. Some of them were extraordinary artists, you know, really talented. And um, and then you'd have that I just loved those I can't remember their names, but I can picture them, this English couple who I thought were ancient, they were probably in their forties, and they had, you know, done all the work man's clubs around the UK and they did this double magic husband and wife act which was just pure charm and I loved people like that they had so many fascinating stories to tell so you, you know they come they sort of we were there we were in the Rheingold it's called the Rheingold and the club is still there in Carlsruhe I think the it's a nightclub a rave club or whatever now um, but um, that makes me sound ancient doesn't it rave club and um, but they, they, um, they, you know, every three months they'd be back again. So they'd just be doing the circus of all these kind of clubs, you know. Um, but yeah, there were some amazing people. We met extraordinary people. 
and of course you came back what you said you were there for a year and a half or two years so that you would have been a year and a half yeah so you would have been back in dublin say 79 80 um this was a time in dublin when it was really kicking off in terms of rock music and live music as well and there was a change wasn't there because we had the kind of well let's say for our overseas listeners we had a an generally show bands which were kind of these bands that were big bands they had nine or ten members to be usually a lead singer or a double act singers and they'd be doing lots of cover versions and it'd be kind of like a half and half between middle of the road and country music and then suddenly that was being replaced really really quickly in Dublin especially by this you know a massive surge in rock music and live music and I think you were quite in the middle of it because I remember you and you were really versatile because you would be say doing your rock music there'd be a bit of pop coming out somewhere and then also you would be working with bands like Moving Hearts and you yeah. know, if you go and if, if anybody doesn't know who Moving Hearts is, they need to go onto YouTube now and look because they had this unique ability to blend rock music with traditional Irish music. It was. It was very exciting. But when I look back on it now, I think my naivety again, you know, I didn't fully know the history of Moving Hearts and Planksteed before them. And, you know, I suppose I was young enough and arrogant enough to think that I could replace Christy Moore and McCanley. McCanley came after Christy. Um, but when I look back on it now, I think I should never have been in Moving Hearts. I was not a trad singer. I was not a rabble rouser, fist flailing, you know, um, and they, that was the kind of material that, that Moving Hearts was doing. But how I ended up in Moving Hearts was when I came back to Ireland, I joined a band, Toy With Rhythm. We won, Max L Tapes did a search for a band and there was hundreds and hundreds of entries and we won and our prize was um, recording in Windmill Lane and having a single produced by Bill Whelan. So that's how I met Bill Whelan. And from there, Bill was doing an awful lot of session work as well as producing practically every Dublin band. He was also doing loads of commercials. He did ads. So I was, you know, I could be in the studio one day doing back and vocals for Moore O'Connell or whoever. And then the next day doing a coffee commercial. So, you know, I, it was great because I was actually working. I was getting paid and, um, and it was through um, Bill, I was doing, we were, I think we were doing a session for those nervous animals and um, Owen O'Neill, who was the bass player in Moving Hearts, was on the session. And then I got a call um, to uh, about joining Moving Hearts. And I said, I used to, I used to just say, yeah, OK, and anybody asked me to do anything, OK. Um, and uh, I never really think about it. Because I think I was terrified of not of being out of work, of not being wor- of not working. But I think being versatile is a great advantage nowadays. But back then, it was like you were, I think, I felt sometimes I was considered, um, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. But to be fair to you now, you know, I mean, when I look back on the, listen to the recordings, I look at the live work, that was a pretty hard gig, you know. And, Very hard And gig, like, yeah. you know, this was a really well-established band. You know, we're talking probably the most popular trad rock band in the world at mm. that point. Because um, the, and and they had, as you said, you were following in huge fo- footsteps. I mean, I I would put that in the same vein as trying to step into the band after Van Morrison and all the others have done their gig. So you know, and especially we can't we have to say this, but especially as a woman, it would have been difficult yeah. as well because traditionally, in in traditional bands, even there wasn't women. Women were usually cabaret singers, as you said, who are either in the show bands, and they'd usually be on the side of some other guy who's ten years older than them. So to be able to go out there 
as a 21 year old or 22 year old and stand in front of what 5,000 people you know in the national stadium or whatever you know yeah. that was a tough gig so to be fair I think you're being a bit hard on yourself there Flo now to be honest well it, um, I but my friends always say I'm hard on myself it was and it was a tough gig and I'll always remember one gig there was a club no longer there in New York called the bottom line and we did the bottom line New York and it was the sort of culmination of a tour that we had done in Canada and all across America and the bottom line was a big gig and I think we had two shows there on the first night there were two guys down the back who for the whole gig were shouting where's Christy where's Christy get off where's Christy and that was all I could focus on and being young and innocent and naive as I was I ended up um, during one of the, the instruments and uh, the instrumentals going off stage and crying my eyes out in the dressing room and not wanting to go back on. And I look back at that little girl and I would, I said, now, Flo now, would have said to them, I mean, I'd have no problem saying to them, if you were a true fan of Moving Hearts, you'd know that Christy Moore left the band three years ago, blah, blah, blah. And if you're not happy, there's the door, get your money back in. And um, that's what I'd say now, you know, but I was so, so sensitive and so easily hurt and um, as, as you can be at that age. And it really messed with my confidence. Um, I mean, being in Moving Hearts messed with my confidence because I always felt I was second best. And I hadn't really discovered my true voice, my actual who I was as a singer. I didn't know who I was at that age. I really didn't. I think I was probably in my late 30s before I found who I was as a singer. Yeah, I think most singers feel that way, though. Yeah, and but nobody's interested in you, really, as a singer. You know, it's kind of, you look at it's the same today as it was 30 years ago. You know, they want young, beautiful, and but yet, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a vocalist, you know, your voice develops, your life experience shows in your voice. I'm far more interested in listening to Cassandra Wilson or someone like that than, you know, I don't know, I accept, I, I make an exception for Lady Gaga. I think she's extraordinary and she's, Probably 30 something now. I was wanted to talk to you about Megamix, which was the, the TV show that we all got to know you on. Let's draw the scene here. You know, this is 1980s Ireland. Everyone knew someone who was unemployed. It didn't matter where yeah. they were. We were all bored. We had this nonsense of TV with, you know, marked and market selling cows live on television or either you had Sunday morning, you know, mass or whatever. This was Ireland in the 80s when it came to TV. We didn't have any independent television. We only had two channels. So we had the BBC yeah. as well. We were, we were lucky. And I think Irish people have understood the British because of BBC and ITV. And yeah, so BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, yeah. or One. That's it. And then they had That's Top of the Pops. So and they, they had, had Top of the Pops or they had the Whistle Test. So if you were more serious yeah. about music and kind of like, you know, taught yourself as a bit upper class, you'd go on the Whistle Test. But if you wanted to make be a pop star, yes. you went on Top of the Pops. And then suddenly someone came up with this amazing idea to host an Irish version, a really good quality production of mm. Top of the Pops. And mm. like the setting, it was in Christchurch. It was in the old yeah. ba the building next door to Christchurch, which is a part of Christchurch. So the setting immediately yeah. was leagues above yeah. anything we've ever seen before. And then they yeah. had the idea of getting yourself and Kevin Sharkey, who were opposites attract. That's the only way you can describe yeah. it. Kevin came from an Afro-Irish yeah. background. You were a local girl from Dublin. And yeah. it was just brilliant. And every kid I know would talk about Megamix the next day. And it went I right know, through. I know, and it was... And we had we had amazing bands because very cleverly we would film. I think on I think 
on Tuesdays, Mondays and Tuesdays, I think, or definitely Tuesdays, and Top of the Pops will be filmed on a Wednesday for Thursday. So a lot of the bands would come over and do Mega Mix basically as a run through. And we saw a lot of bands sort of coming to Mega Mix, you know, before they'd even broke. I remember Brass, the two, the twin brothers. I mean, they're part of their band, but I remember them coming sh- and uh, on Mega Mix and they hadn't even broken into UK, but we knew it was going to happen within weeks. <laughs> so that's my dog choking. <laughs> Um, and uh, you know, she's kept us that reverse sneezing yes. thing. Um, sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'd erase and we'd like we'd every sort of major band in the 80s, so, you know, coming over and doing Megamix. And Declan Nowney was the director of Megamix. Um, Declan had, had, I did TV Gaga before Megamix, and it was Billy McGrath and Declan Nowney were the producers. And, um, uh, and Declan, you know, going on to do Father Ted. It, it was no. He was just. He was. He was just very innovative, and it was his vision and the set and, and doing it in the cathedral club. So it really felt you didn't feel like you were on a TV set, and the atmosphere that was there. I think. I think that went through the TV screen. I think you could feel it definitely. Yeah, I mean, because they'd done non-stop pop a few years before that, and it was very bland and very kind of you know it was an exact copy of Top of the Pops. It was such a brave show, and I'm just wondering what happened to it. Did it did it did the numbers cancel, or was it just a case that RTE, as per usual, didn't have enough funds allocated to keep it going? I think it was probably RTE as per usual. I don't I don't remember. I don't even remember if I was told exactly what was happening or why it was being cancelled. We did the second series in another church, so down South Circular Road, it's now apartment buildings, and uh, it's now an apartment. And um, and uh, and then after that, it just, I have no idea. I can't remember what actually happened, but it just was not renewed for whatever reason, which is such a shame because it's the kind of programme they should have run for six years. And that's the thing, Flo, because, you know, a couple of years later, we had Boyzone, we had Bewitched, we had, and then eventually Westlife, all of that scene, yeah. which, you know, we can talk about it from you and I, from a singer's point of view, wasn't very productive when it comes to that. But, you know, in terms of a show, it would have really worked on that show. I mean, you would have had lots and lots of homegrown acts that were pretty, pretty well known outside of Ireland. Yeah, um, There was four or five acts at that time. So it was maybe cancelled just that little bit too early. And if it had been held out for another two or three years, it would have jumped on that and probably would have run even up to today because the format was so good. It was so good and it was so different. And we had we had a really great crew, the cameraman, sound, everything. You know, the I mean, um, you know, everyone was miming, but like just the sound in the room. I was in a, a um, I was when I did the first series of Megamix, I was actually living in London and I was working as a session singer. And um, but myself and another girl, Sam Rattigan, we were sharing an apartment and we both auditioned for the same band and they had loads of people and they whittled it down to two. I never told her and she never told me. They whittled it down to two singers and because we were so competitive back then. And um the two of us, we were the two singers in. So we they couldn't decide between the two of us. So the band was called The Rest is History. And what happened, it was such an exciting band. There was a Prince vibe off it. They were sampling. They were really ahead of their time. And Suzanne and I were both strong singers. So we actually did Megamix. Um, there's footage of, of the rest of his history on Megamix. And um, one of the guys, the, one of the songwriters, was two guys, he basically got poached by Robert Plant. Robert Plant saw us somewhere. And, um, and he ended up going off and touring Robert Plant. And, and the rest of his history was... But it was such a shame to lose it. So look, um, after that, after Mega Mix ended, I noticed then that you were doing acting. 
Was that yeah. something that you always wanted to do um, as well as the singing? Because I always find a lot of singers, they like to perform. And that also means they have the usual knack to be fairly decent actors as well. So does that come naturally or was it would have was it something that you were thinking, OK, I'm going to take a break now from music and maybe see if I can get something in? That's tough. I never had any plan. I, I All these these ones nowadays and their five-year plans and their plans. I never had a plan. I never had any plans. I just kind of rolled, you know, I just sort of rolled along. And how I ended up in theatre was through Bill Whelan. But Bill Whelan was doing the music for the Yates Festival, which happened in the Abbey Theatre every year over a five-year period. And I was involved the first year in the musical. He'd written um, music to some of the poetry and some of the pieces. And I was involved in that. And then the second year, the director, who was an American, very eccentric English um, professor who was a Yates and Beckett fanatic. And he was very fond of me and I got on great with him. And the second year I was cast and the third year and the fourth year and the fifth year. So then suddenly I'm doing these plays in the, in the Abbey and I'm getting parts in them. And so from that, I went on tour and I had to bob went on tour with the commitments as one of the backing singers. I did that for about a year and a half, two years. And while I was on tour, I got a call from Michael Colgan from uh, the Gay Theatre to come and audition for Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And they had Joe Darling was directed and they wanted Titania to be musical. They had a vision of her being a bit, bit rock and roll, a bit Madonna like. So my look, my hair, I think they thought it'd be great if she can act. But um, I, I was I was in Sheffield or somewhere at the time and I didn't have permission to come home and audition. So one of the girls and uh, the other backing singer covered for me and I got up at seven o'clock in the morning, flew home, did the audition in the gate, flew back at like five in the evening, went straight on stage. And uh, uh, but I remember when I had to learn Tanya's monologue, but I loved Shakespeare, I loved English, I loved Shakespeare, I loved Joyce, I love Yeats. And um, I it's and I thought I understand um, the, uh, Shakespeare and these po other poets because of the musicality. I understood the music and the language. So I felt quite confident about it and I got it. And then that was, so it was never a plan, but of course it was performance and it was just, I love live. I love an, an audience in front of you. That's true. Yeah. And what I wanted to ask you was when you first got up on the stage the first few times in theatre, was it very different to performing with a gig in a gig with a band? Yeah, completely. I mean, with a band, you do have the luxury. You've got this band around you and the sound and the amplification and the monitors and the microphones. And it's an area I feel very comfortable in. So in a theatre setting, it, yeah, it's very different. You might have an, an ensemble cast, but it is different. And I did feel, you know, a little bit slightly, you know, not out of my depth, but I don't think it was particularly made easy for me. Um in particular in the gate, you know, it's a very small pool. It's a very large pool, um, a, a pool of actors and actresses all vying for the same jobs. So it might have been thought like, you know, this singer, why is she, play, you know, why is she getting that? I felt that. I, I felt it on opening night afterwards when you're in the bar and there's loads of other actors and actresses around. Yeah, I just felt. But but still, you got, you got, you got a good few years out of it. And at the end of it, yeah. You know, um, people were talking about you in terms of acting more in terms of singing then at that point, from uh, what I remember. Were they? I, I think yeah, so. Probably. Yeah, probably. I suppose so, yeah. And, I mean, you know, I did, like, uh, um, over the last sort of 10 years as well, in my late 40s, mm. I did um, 
Robert C. Kelly's shows. I did Menopause Musical and Mums of Words and all that. Yeah, great. yeah. I mean, can I just stop you there? Yeah. That was a great, great performance. And that was a great show because um, it, it turned so many heads. I always think that that was the catalyst, that show, for the whole line of active activism against how women were being treated in the general public way, in how men generally perceive them. Yeah. You know that they're, they're you know, they're, as far as men are concerned, menopause doesn't exist. It's something they don't have to worry about. And what that show did was it made women really comfortable and men really uncomfortable. I know, and, you know, and, that, and I think that was the start of what we got, you know, with the went on to the marriage referendum, the repeal date. It was just at that point where Ireland turned a corner. Yeah. And it was just really great performances from you guys, the three of you. It was just brilliant. It was, but it was also, it was also, I mean, it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of silliness. But our our audience was, you know, mainly made up of groups of women having a mad girls' night out with the box. A bottle of wine shoved with their handbag already opened and the glass, the plastic glass is in there. I mean, you see the amount of empty bottles of wine they could paint in the theatre afterwards. And then there'd be the odd guy. And the funny thing was, I wasn't, I was 47 when I did Menopause the Musical and I wasn't menopausal myself at that stage. I really didn't what anyone was talking about. I was 51 before I started into that. Um, but it, 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 you know, it made menopause an easy subject to talk about, to laugh about, to laugh at ourselves, and uh, and that it wasn't this awful thing like the like the thing we don't talk about periods or menstruation like we were in the eighties. I mean, do you remember? Like the, there was ads for tampons and for labour women's products were banned. We're not allowed on television. When you think of it, it's insane. And like you know, as far as the you know, Ireland in the 80s was concerned. They, those things just didn't exist. And I think as it go, went into the mid-90s with, with performances like this, what it did, as I said, was it opened the door to make things normal. And to hell with it, if you're feeling comfortable with it, well, that's your problem rather than, you know, your problem to deal with. So it was a great show that I really think it kicked off that whole you know, emphasis on to ha- two fingers to the con- the conservative establishment that we had in Ireland, just from a social point of view. Yeah. And well, how nice it was that we had a, a former punker coming in there and doing it. So. I'm talking about menopause. I know, I know. It's funny, you know, always when I'm singing live now, I, I said, I'm like Ella Fitzgerald in her later years. And if you see footage of Ella Fitzgerald, she always had a handkerchief because she just was sweating buckets. I did a gig in Kilkenny last Sunday and I made a reference to Ella Fitzgerald and her white handkerchief, but mine was a paper napkin. Hers was always kind of like a silk. But like I'm like that now, it just pours out, pours out of me. And um, you know, make a bunny down the face and everything. I just think, God, poor women, we have a lot to deal with. At, at all the various stages of your life, I just think Mother Nature, oh God, to leave us alone. <laughs> I know it's mad because, um, like. I was a singer for a long time in my young days and then my cousin asked me to do a gig a few years ago and I was the same I was you know my late 40s sweating two kids the whole shebang trying to get there in time and do stuff and you know remember forgetting lines and then you know as you say the guys just come up and go oh you're brilliant you know you're brilliant and like as you say it's so much I said I'm not brilliant I feel crap I don't ever want to do this again yeah you know we looked apart it's much easier for us to get away with that is what I'm trying to say you know I mean I was I just know. like you I was completely shattered I didn't want to move yeah. after and yeah I know it's I just fellas get away we get away with far too much we should be made to wear makeup like we did in the 80s I, I think, well, I do think, I mean, I think from a sort of nature point of view, my God, women do have, you know, have a lot to contend with. We certainly do. 
Okay, so then you went to jazz. I want to keep you here because you went to jazz yeah. and this I think you found your niche, found your comfortable spot. I think I did. Was it always there? Was it always something that you listened to, say, when you were on the, you know, the tour bus or, you know, Time to Kill? Were you always listening to a bit of jazz? I think when I was around 27, I remember I was living in an apartment at the top of Pembroke Road. And I was very friendly with Gerald Davis, who um, Gerald Davis was the guy who used to do Bloomsday. And he had he was an art dealer, he had an art gallery on um, just over the Hapney Bridge. And above his gallery, he had this apartment, which was like a New York style kind of loft. Whenever you were up there, you felt like you were, you were in New York. And he had the most extraordinary collection of CDs of jazz. And I had in sort of like maybe my late 20s, early 30s, been sort of dabbling a little bit. And I started doing, I did a gig in the Wildebeest, which was Johnston's Court, you know, the little bay between Grafton Street and the Paris Court Town Centre. And along there on the left was a kind of restaurant called the Wildebeest. And what was lovely about it was they had a wine license until midnight, but then they used to pull the shutters down and close the doors. It became a complete speakeasy. And every musician that was gigging around town would end up there because they know there'd be free wine and they'd play. So I started a little gig there doing jazz, kind of because I'd been listening to borrowing CDs from Gerald. And I remember hearing Black Coffee, Jimmy London singing Black Coffee. And I thought it was a really kind of eureka moment. It's like, that's my song. That's my song. I don't care about Julie London. It's my song. It was just it was a real moment for me. And I have such a, a love of that song because that was the song that I just thought, this is, it. you know, I've done stuff that might be a little bit challenging for me to sing. And I don't think I, everything should be easy and natural. And when I discovered this kind of music, I discovered a tone, a big rounder, warmer, lower tones that I had that I didn't know I had. Um, so, you know, I started doing these little gigs and the Wildebeest was great. Paul Bushnell, who ended up being the musical director on the movie, The Commitments, and he's now in, lives in L.A., has a very successful career, uh, tours with Tim McGraw and uh, Faith Hill and his bass player. His mother's Anne Bushnell, who used to do Edith Piaf 100 years ago, um, an amazing woman. She was an amazingly talented woman. Um, and so Paul and uh, so there was Paul and myself and maybe Dick Farrelly on guitar in the Wildebeest on a Saturday night. And at the time I was doing Century Radio Sunday morning breakfast show. But all the musos, Richie Buckley and all the guys around town would all end up in the Wildebeest afterwards. So we could start with four of us on stage and there could be 12 of us by the end of the night. We'd be there till four or five o'clock in the morning, drinking wine. And then I would go home and I would be on air at midday the next day. I reckon I was fluted half the time I did that show. So when the jazz came into play, then you decided after so much time to do a solo album, because I can't believe it. When I was researching, I couldn't believe that this was your first solo album. I know. That's, I know. that's I unbelievable. Kind of... Surely, though, you must have been approached before to do some well, kind of solo album. I, I, I had I had a, a publishing deal and a record deal with Virgin Music back in my late 20s. And it kind of went pear-shaped when these smaller companies basically were all disbanded and swallowed up into the big company. But it it it, it never happened. And I just because I suppose, you know, like you can make it happen yourself, it costs money to do it. But I realized like when I got to 56, 57, I think that's I was 50, I'm 61 now. I was 57 when I released the album. So it was 2019, I think. And uh, uh, and the reason why I did it, because I just was one day I thought, if I die, if I keel over tomorrow, my greatest hits will be a load of um, commercials. 
you know, for HB ice cream and the good alike. I haven't done solo album. I've sung on so many other people's albums and uh, and not my own. So my mother died in 2018 and she was 94. And two weeks after she died, I started recording this album. And it was I did it with Fiacre Trench. I had been touring with Fiacre and his wife, Carmen McRae, and we had this show stolen from the Channel 4 uh you know, remember, what was it? Four Divas, what was it? Oh, Four Gays and the Piano or something. Whatever it was called. They used to be on them, uh, Jonathan Ross's show. So we called it Two Divas and a Piano. And um, so it was Carmen, myself, and her husband, Fiacre. And Fiacre Trench is the most extraordinary musician and yeah, um, string arranger. I mean, he has worked with, I mean, Van Morrison. He taught Linda McCartney to play piano so that she could be in Wings. He worked, I mean, he'll be working with Vicar and he'll just suddenly mention this movie that he worked on. He worked, he gave Hans Zimmer his first ever job. And I went with Carmel and Vicar to see Hans Zimmer in the Three Arena earlier in the summer. 15,000 people in the middle of it. Hans Zimmer stops the show and goes, where is Vicar Trench? And then, you know, Vicar's sliding down his chair and I'm kind of going, and uh, Hans Zimmer said, I wouldn't have the career I have today were it not for this man. He's an extraordinary man and an incredibly humble man. And it was a natural progression for me after doing two years of gigs with Carmen and Vicar, where I really felt Vicar understood my voice. And so we, so I did this jazz album and a lot of the stuff that I was doing live with him. And we recorded it in his studio in Delgany. And we had a string quartet from the symphony orchestra play. And when you listen to it, it sounds like it's a full string section. This four. Yeah, it's just, I was listening to it this morning, actually. And I just, I, one thing that really stuck out for me was the arrangements are just really class. Because you see what happens, I think nowadays, you probably notice yourself, it's a lot of stuff gets rushed because it's digitized. So, you know, it gets pushed through the recording session and the, yeah. and the down the down production gets lost a little bit. But I found that this wasn't the case with your album. There was a real rich, as if every single note had been attended to. And that's what really appealed to me. Yeah, and it had. And we did it. We did it in 12 days. Wow. Yeah, we didn't, it didn't feel like it was worse. I mean, the strings and the brass literally came in for two separate sessions and I was paying them per three hour session and particularly when the strings came in because Pete was so brilliant to what he does. The strings came in at four o'clock in the afternoon because they were rehearsing all day in the concert hall. Like, and these guys, it's a real tribute to Fiacre. Fiacre Trench calls you for a session and you're playing, you have your gig in the concert hall. You don't, you don't care what time it's at, you'll go because it's Fiacre Trench. He has that much respect. And he had, he had written out all the arrangements. I'm in the control room. His son, Rian, was a brilliant producer was and engineer, was engineering the session. And we'd five songs to do. And, you know, I remember back, I mean, I did an album with the Manchester band, A Certain Ratio, back in the early 90s. And we were six weeks, six weeks, six freaking weeks in a, in a, one of these residential studios. And just mad, you know, five days on the flipping drums, that kind of nonsense, utter nonsense. So anyway, so we are, I'm standing in the studio watching Fiacre through the glass and he's conducting the, the, the string quartet and they rehearse it once into record. I think they do two, two takes of every song and it was bam, bam. That's the pro, isn't it? Oh my, I, the whole, the whole, that, that whole string section was recorded for five songs in two hours. And I was in floods of tears because it was so emotional for me. I suppose my mother's death being fairly raw and as, you know, as elderly as my mum was and it was a happy release, It, I was very close to her. So it was a very, I mean, I 
you know, dedicated the album to my parents. I must get a physical copy to you, Ken, because um, the pictures of my my photographs are pictures of my parents um, on the album. But um, I remember just being in floods of tears, just the beauty of the arrangements and the string sections. And it's where Fiacre is at his just where he just is comes into his own when he's writing for a string section. I think the thing is when what happened was, as you say, and I do remember a certain ratios, it did give me the impression that they would take six weeks to record a drum session. But anyway, that was the true professionalism of Fiacre because I, you, what was happening was it was becoming to you very quickly. Yeah. So it wasn't something that you were dropping in and out because I find that's an, a situation when that can happen when you're recording something that if you're not involved in it a hundred percent, so you're coming in every now and again and you can't get the vibe for the whole recording. Yeah. So when within those two or three hours, as you say, it was coming together really quickly. So it must have been like a wave of emotion that hits you when it's your song, your voice, and then all these other people are working for you. And it's coming together so well. It must be just... It is. It really is. And it was also because when it came to the string arrangements, I, you know, I had to just trust Fiacre and I've totally trusted him. I didn't hear them until they were recording them. But in every other aspect, I, I you know, I just think, like, I'm ne- I've never sat at a desk before and engineered, but I just thought, just for the experience that I've had over the years, I know how I want things to sound. I don't like hearing voices on this side and that side. I always like to hear voices there because i know when i have headphones on it really irritates me if i hear you know half the backing vocals that side i like to hear the wall of sound and when we were doing um, van morrison's moon dance i had this notion to do what they call a canon of voices coming in and i, I was trying to explain it to fiacre and not explaining it very well and i said just let me go in and do it and i did it and was like i'm fine i got you so you know my i was very proud of my own of my own involvement in my own album but i was very proud of co-producing it because i i felt i knew what i wanted there are mistakes i made i listen back now and i think kind of weird slightly weird song the beast and me why did i record that and a lot of people said to me you know it was perfect up to that moment and then you throw that song in and i said because i like a little bit of weird i'm not a straightforward person and i'm not a straightforward jazz singer i am and i'm not and i like something that's a little bit weird but now when i look back on it i thought well maybe you could have left that one out yeah but i think uh, yeah but sometimes you know the, it's a, all the great albums have tracks that we all skip you know, and then, you know, you have yes. somebody, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, and you always have. So I didn't skip it. I mean, I went through it this morning and it it's didn't not. come across to me in any way, shape yeah. or form. That I loved it. It, 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 it was the, 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 not the ego in me, but it was the, the sometimes not knowing what's best for the album. I really want, I lo- I did all, you see, I did all the vocals. So I did all that choral stuff myself. And I love doing, I, 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 I've always loved doing backing vocals and harmonies and harmonizing to my own voice because I, I have become very good at literally sitting a voice on top of and I do 24 vocals I keep going yeah. I do 48 no. vocals it's when you're a singer it's kind of there's either one type of singer and then there's the others there's yourself like myself loved do backing vocals because you love to change and yeah. then there's somebody who likes things yes. set in a way don't change it I'll just do the lead and they have no idea how to harmonise I've come across some really well known singers who haven't got a clue how to harmonise I it, it, it kind of because I know a few as well and it kind of amazes me that someone who is a singer and a vocalist and musical can't do Some people can't hear harmonies, but also treat backing vocals. Uh, and I hate the word. I always call them additional vocals. But, you know, treat them like a backing singer stuff. I'm too above that. Um, I love doing um, I love doing backing vocals. I love singing with other singers that I blend with. When you sing with 
and with another singer who you completely blend with. It's like an absolute meeting of minds of everything. It's it's a, it's a really endorphin. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely make. I'll make sure that we put the uh, in the show notes. We put the link to the to the album because it really is well worth the listen. Oh, I suggested yeah. it getting up in the morning on a Saturday morning when the kids are off playing football. Just pop it on as you're making a bit of toast. It's perfect yeah. for that. And late night as well. I think it's very much. Um, I think it's a. I, I, I was just yeah. about to say that. Yeah, instead of popping on the TV, just have pop it on the hi-fi or whatever you listen to your sound box or whatever now, and just pop it on there. Because what I find is it's actually what you're talking about there. There was no messing with um, the stereo mixes or anything like that. It's just a nice full flow. It's as if you've got somebody in your sitting room playing the actual music, and it's kind of like that nice, as you say, wall of sound. Can I ask you what you're doing now at the moment? Are you busy? I am busy, I, and it's you know it's an odd kind of thing because I. I made a very conscious decision at 50, 11 years ago, to because I had um, in my 40s kind of stepped back a little bit. I had two young kids and um, uh, my husband is, was part of Apri Match and Apri Match has sort of taken off. So, you know, one of us had to be a constant at home. So that was me. And so I did take a step back. Now, I was, you know, people saying, oh, where did you disappear to? And um, I didn't disappear. I was doing a lot of voiceovers and I was I, I was actually working quite a bit. My daughter, um, she's 21 now, but when she was seven, she landed a part in a kind of RTE BBC animation series called Garth and Bev. And she was playing Bev. And because of that, she did two series for them. Poor child wanted to go out playing the green and I'd go, go to work. <laughs> So somebody has to pay for my shoes and um, and actually a college fund. That's what she'll be using to pay for her masters next year. Um, but I ended up doing loads of voices and playing characters on that. And I used to do an awful lot of voiceovers and jingles. And so I was constantly kind of working, but not doing any singing at all, which is kind of extraordinary for me. And at 50, I said, on my 50th birthday, I said, I'm going to get back. I'm going to start singing again. But I knew that, you know, the, the world keeps turning. There's a whole new uh, group of people coming up who have not heard Flo Maxvini and don't know who she is. So I got a gig. And my first gig was with the Hot House Big Band. And I was friendly with Kieran Wilde, who's a sax player, but he's no relation to Mark Wilde, who runs the Hot House Big Band. But I thought they were related. And uh, But he knew Mark and he put a word in for me. And Mark said, OK, your word is good enough for me. We'll give her a go. So I did my first gig. But Mark didn't know who, didn't have a clue who I was. You saw, like, we can see each other just for the podcast here. But you must have saw me raising my eyes there when he said, put in a good word for her. I got like, holy I'm not going to say what I was going to say there, but like, that's crazy. But as you say, that's a generation gap, isn't it? It's weird. It's a totally total good generation gap. I, I was doing a gig in Kilkenny on Sunday. I do once a month in the left bank with a fabulous quartet. I'm part of the quartet. There's a different singer every week. Um, but uh, it's a Carol Nelson on piano. She's an amazing guy called Adrian Jackson on, on uh, double bass and then drums, different drummers. But this young American guy came up to me on Sunday and said, I mean, young, he was probably in his late 20s. And he said, do you know Elvis Gerald's Summertime? And I was going, yeah, and he was saying it like he was picking some obscure song. <laughs> you don't see her to go, oh, this is great. Yeah. And I went, yes, I do. And I think like Summertime is the song that everyone goes, oh, Jesus, not this one. Um, I've heard, we've all heard a lot of people butcher it over the years. But anyway, I did Summertime for him. And then he came up with 20 euro, wanted to give me a tip. <laughs> 
YouTube. It's so American. And I said, no, I said, I said, give it to your favorite charity. Because I thought, yeah. I'm not taking it and sticking it down my bra. I thought, oh, so I'm back, I'm back in the Rhinegold again. And I thought, I'll well, give the band five reach, you know. <laughs> but I thought it was funny and sweet. Was, but yeah, yeah. he was talking about, 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 um, as if I might not have heard I know, it I know. but look you know it's it's just amazing that you're still gigging and it's brilliant because people fall down the trap of just going off and thinking I won't fill a club or a gig anymore yeah and I do feel that I, I, I do get I do get to feel like that sometimes but some of the gigs that I'm doing are gigs that I would have turned down a hundred years ago that I would you know been so up myself that I'm, I wouldn't do this gig or that gig like I do the gig in Kilkenny is the left bank and it's a bar it's a beautiful bar it's a beautiful room but they these guys have been doing this gig for 10 years with different singers and so they have established it it was wonderful for me to come in and also I think the most important thing is I sing for two hours straight and I haven't done that in a very long time. So that kind of keeps the chops still going. I did a couple of gigs during the um, Lobster Festival in Dorky um, in August. And then I have a friend, Andrew Rudd, who has medley events and I've done corporate stuff for him. I've done private parties. So I have a guitarist that I work with. So there's all sorts of kind of different gigs. Then on this Thursday coming, I am Tom Cole Jr.'s guest in the Civic Theatre in Tala. He's kind of just swing kind of show. So I'm his guest, so I'm doing three songs, my own song with him. And then my big gig um, next April is, it's Pat Egan is promoting it. It's um, the Nelson Riddle Orchestra conducted by Christopher Riddle, who's Nelson Riddle's son. So they're coming to the Borgosh Energy Theatre. And uh, a guy I don't know, I've seen him, seen him, but I've looked him up, Stephen Triffitt, and he does all the Frank Sinatra arrangements. And I'm doing some of Linda Ronstadt's, uh, Ronstadt's arrangements that Nelson Riddle wrote for her in the 80s. Yeah, she did What's New and stuff like that. Yeah, and I've got Crush on You. And she did three albums. And um, uh and she was 36 at the time. It's funny, when I listen to her, I think she sounds much younger. I thought she was about 26, um, but she's about 36. And um, so I'm doing those arrangements. So it's a lovely gig to get. I'm like, I, and I'll be 62 when I'm doing it. And I, I kind of, I'm proud of myself that I sort of, I feel like it's like I scrambled back up the cliff face, you know, age 50, and that my 50s kind of building it up again. I remember reading somewhere a long time ago, Patty Smith saying an advice to, to musicians is mind your career when you're young. And I I wouldn't have gotten that then because I was so skygy and flitty. It's great that you're busy. And is there any chance of a new album coming out? Have you thought about that at all? I, I have. I really have. And there's this wonderful guy, um, Fran King, that um, I've met in recent years. Fran used to be part of the bootleg Beatles. And he, when... when Oh, my God. When George Martin did a gig in 2010, I think Leslie Dowdall did it from a junior in the concert hall doing songs of the Beatles. Fran did um, all McCartney songs because he can he can sound like McCartney. He's extraordinary. He's got a four, uh, four octave range. He's a beautiful songwriter and he's written songs for me. So it's a question of trying to scrape together the money or find some um, wealthy relative who's, you know, a bit would like to leave that money to me for, for me to do an album. <laughs> I, have, I would really like to do another one. And I kind of, because I can't believe I released that in 2019. It's not a recent release anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think there's songs that are albums that endure, but, you know, it's a really great quality album. And if you don't do another one, at least you have one that you can be really, really proud of. Um, yeah, I know it's amazing. 
more than, you know, I did not expect when I did that album. My expectations and my notions of what success is has totally changed as I've gotten older. When I was younger, success would have been about being massive, huge. And whereas now my idea of success, I feel that I've had, a, if I look back, I've had a successful life because I'm still doing it. And there's still, an, you know, as an audience, a smaller audience. But doing that album for me was leaving it for my children that they have that that's there. I always remember each day that I did a vocal on the album when I finished the vocal and I thought I can't perfect it any better. This is it. The relief I felt, I thought that's there. And of course, that that comes with maturity when you say, no, I'm just going to leave it now because if you're younger, you'd have been still messing with it and, and, you know, completely wrecked about it. Totally. And there's stuff that isn't perfect, but there's some songs that there's one song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's a Randy Newman song and it's just piano and vocal. It's um, um, and, uh, you're going to miss me when I'm gone, when I'm gone. And it's, it's, it's a very sad song. People think it's about death, but it's actually about divorce. But we did that literally last minute because we had been working on another song and we had an hour left of kind of studio time. And I said to Fiacre, can we just record that? Because um, we had done, we, I think I'd only done it live fairly recently. And so Fierke went in and played, and then we just built a booth in the control room around me. So we did it live. And I think it was the second take um, that we just went. And, you know, there's little things that aren't perfect, but I said the emotions there and the feel is there. And that's what is, is right. And it's one of my favorite songs. You've joined a two-take club. I think so. And, and, you know, because I do think it's all about feel and more longer you keep repeating something, you're doing it over, you lose it. And I just thought, and it is when I listen to the album, that's one of my favourite songs and it is just piano and voice, you know. I have the amount, amount of friends who said to me, oh, I'm going to have that played at my funeral. I said, I'll probably have it played at mine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be playing your songs at my funeral. <laughs> Come here. I always ask this last question of all of my guests. Yeah. Um, so what are you listening to or reading at the moment? I'm just about to start reading. I bought it on Amazon for my daughter and she hasn't started reading it yet. And I'll be reading it again. It's Memoirs of a Geisha. That was, um, it, it, it's, it, it's a novel set in the 1940s. And I read it years ago and I remember just it had such a, uh, an incredible effect on me. And it is the story of a geisha girl um, in Japan in World War Two, around the time of World War Two. Listening wise, I am a big Rufus Wainwright fan, and I love his mad stuff. I love slideshow. I love the stuff. I love. I love that. Like particular songs, like slideshow. And I don't really know the song, but if you don't listen to it, it's like you think you know where a song is going, and then it just goes off into this. You know. The production in it is superb. I mean, he always, I don't know who he does to get to produce his stuff, but it must be hard work for the producer and engineer. Yeah, oh, just, just extraordinary. He's, um, I saw him in the concert hall last year and I was a little bit disappointed. It was just after Glastonbury and it was just him and his piano and guitar. And I felt he was phoning it in a little bit. He was tired. He was on his way back from Glastonbury. Any magic that he created on stage kept on losing by trying to sell his merchandise, you know, that kind of compared to seeing Katie Lang in the concert hall in 2019. And I dragged my husband to see her and he was like, oh, I don't know, am I going to like this? And he was, I looked at him at the end and he was in tears. She was just, oh, wow. just extraordinary. That takes, yeah. Extraordinary. She's a, she's a brilliant, brilliant performer, Katie Lang. Um, you know, she's... Oh, and her band, she just, 
just incredible. So, and but I'm very, my musical tastes are very eclectic. And I have Spotify in the kitchen when I'm cooking. I have a playlist which is about three hours long and it's called Favorite Ladies. And it's only women. And so I add songs to it. So it's a, and it's a mix of everything, you know, really is from contemporary to jazz to, you know, I have my niece, my sister's daughter is called Aoife Nessa Francis, and she is forging quite a career for herself as a solo artist, and she's got a very indie sound. So she'd be on my playlist. So it's kind of indie, followed by Ella Fitzgerald, followed by Prissy Hines. Or, ooh, I'm sure she's looking back at your photographs and saying, oh, there's a bit of visual in- inspiration from the 80s. Well, Rebel flow. <laughs> you know. I, I I think I I think they always thought of they, my nieces and nephews think of me as the cool aunt. That's brilliant. You know, that's that's the best way to be. Yeah. Flo, so I want to thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to chat to me today. It's been really brilliant. Um, I was looking forward to doing this because I knew it was I was meeting a, a little bit of an idol, and I know you might laugh and you play that down. Don't play it ah, down. No, that's very sweet. Thank you. I love talking about myself. Yes, absolutely, and we love talking to you about yourself as well. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to everybody who joined me on the comfortable spot. My name is Ken Sweeney, and I will talk to you again real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you.